0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Human Rights, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rin Beeth, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Kim Kelly about her new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Thanks for being with us today, Kim.
1: Thanks so much for taking the time and being interested in my little book.
0: I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words um, about yourself.
1: Well, I, uh, <laughs> I'm a lot of different things, but I think in this context, I suppose the most important one is that I'm an independent labor reporter. I've been freelance for the past, God, like three years. And I'd started writing about labor a few years prior to that. And before all that, I worked in the music business. And what kind of changed my trajectory there was that the place where I was working, Vice, we unionized and I got super involved and was super excited about the whole thing, and uh, ended up kind of metamorphosizing from a heavy metal journalist into a labor reporter. And so that's what kind of led me to this point. And I um, I guess just on a more personal note, I do come from a union family, like a blue-collar, working-class, rural family of construction workers and steel workers and teachers out in South Jersey. So I grew up knowing about unions and appreciating unions, but never thought I would get the chance to join one myself until that happened in 2015. And so I'm just really excited to to be here and have this book coming out so I can share my excitement about labor with everybody else. Fantastic.
0: I know that you said a little bit of, about this in your um, in your bio just now talking about um, your experience uh, in a union in your family history, but I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about what led you to, to write this book.
1: Sure. Well, I, I can't imagine writing any other kind of book. <laughs> it's uh, like the opportunity. like I've been working with a book agent for a few years now, and I was originally going to write a book about heavy metal. And that kind of changed as my my own focus changed. And when the opportunity came up to put together a proposal and get out there, I thought, okay, what do I want to do? Oh, I should just build upon the work I've been doing already as a journalist, and uh, especially with my teen Vogue column that I've been doing since 2018, which I've kind of been using. I think people that read this book that have, are familiar with those columns will see a lot of common ground. Like I've been using that platform to dive into these forgotten labor histories and these forgotten labor leaders and center more marginalized voices And when the opportunity to write a whole book came up, I was like, oh, cool. Now I have a little bit more time, a little bit more space to really dig into these people and these campaigns and these strikes that I knew a little bit about. But you can only fit so much into like a 1200 word web piece. Like I I finally got to nerd out and uh, I just happened to be during a time of great upheaval And a consciousness shift among the workers in this country around their lives and their labor and the values of both. So, yeah, I guess it was pretty good timing (laughs) as much as one can plan these things.
0: Yeah, um, I guess sort of shifting away from some of the excitement and the optimism in the book, which I, I, I have questions for you about as well. Um, throughout the book, you actually note a number of, of ways in which some labor unions and groups um, didn't necessarily fight um, fight oppression or fight for equality in the ways that we might like. Um, for example, you mentioned the Chinese Exclusion Act a mm. number of times. Why did you feel like this was something that was important to include?
1: I think if you love something, you should feel able to criticize it and help it get better. And I don't think ignoring the ugly parts of the movement's history does anybody any good. I think it's actually really important to look back at the mistakes and bad decisions and just horrible, bigoted BS that some labor leaders decided they were going to get into because that shows, you know, how far we still need to go and how far we've come. I think it's, you know, learning our history is very much a warts and all process. Like, it's not all pretty. It's not all nice. Sometimes it gets pretty ugly. And I think if we want to really be, you know, fully cognizant of the, um, I guess just the, the burdens we carry and the mission that we're carrying forward, like, we got to know where we came from, even if it's embarrassing or upsetting or, you know, awful. Like, because there's been some awful stuff scattered throughout labor history because... <laughs> You know, maybe the right people weren't always in charge and the right people maybe didn't necessarily get to grab the microphone or lead the strike. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes the bad guys are in charge and we have to confront that if we're going to make things better.
0: That's yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, <laughs> your your book goes back in time, um, decades, sometimes hundreds of years, um, and then comes up into the nearly present moments. Um, I'm, I'm guessing as well with some ongoing strikes that you were perhaps updating things right up until deadline. How do you see, (laughs) how do you see, um, the past reflected in current labor organizing efforts and also just public discussions around labor organizing? Um, and I'm thinking in light of COVID-19, um, which you mentioned throughout the book, but also this significant media coverage around unionizing that at least um, I haven't seen in my my lifetime.
1: Yeah, it's wild to see. Like, it's really cool, especially as a labor reporter, right? Like, oh, wow, people are paying attention to these things I've been screaming about, and a lot of other people have been screaming out for years, and some folks have been screaming about these things for decades. And I, I hope that they are also enjoying this new spotlight on worker stories and on the work that they've been doing way before I was a twinkle in my union organizer's eye. But (laughs) yeah, one thing that's so, I mean, to go back to being excited, I'm like kind of a Pollyanna about these things. I'm just really stoked all the time about labor. But um, one of the things that's so exciting about seeing all this coverage, this attention on current worker struggles is that it's inspiring people to get involved and start organizing themselves. And in order to do that effectively, I think it's important to look back at the past and at lessons that other organizers and other workers came up with and other tactics they used, what won or what worked and what didn't work. I mean, even just thinking about the success of the Amazon labor unions in Staten Island, the way they organized and the way they approached that work, it really brought to mind the work that Dorothy Lee Bolden was doing back in the 60s in Atlanta, uh, she was a black woman who was a domestic worker and who began working in that field when she was a child and grew up doing that work and she decided she was going to put together a labor organization for the other black women that she worked with because there weren't any unions at the time that were really, you know, knocking down those doors trying to organize domestic workers but she she realized okay well we need to come together we need to organize we need to demand better because this this is the status quo is not acceptable. And she did, she took a very similar approach, approach to what Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer and those folks took. Like she talked to people she knew, she related to them on a personal level as a worker, as a woman, as someone that they knew from riding the buses and from seeing her at work seeing her at work. And she built up this network of, I think at the its height, it was about 10,000 members throughout Atlanta and the South. And they were able to, you know, push for higher wages and to professionalize the work and got really involved in voter registration. Like they moved mountains and they didn't do it within the traditional labor union framework. They built their own and it worked. And I think looking back at examples like that can be so useful for folks who are trying to organize now who maybe don't see a place for themselves within the traditional labor union labor movement or like whose jobs don't fit neatly into a category that falls under an existing union. Like you can do it yourself. Other people have been doing it for centuries. It's just, you know, helpful to look back and see how they pulled it off and figure out how you can build on that.
0: Yeah. I'm also, so in, in reading this, um, I noticed a number of stories that I was familiar with, um, just through through my own work, through my own reading, um, I also have family in the the greater Boston area. So mm. stories about Lawrence and and the Mills, and anyway, just a lot of really really fantastic um, descriptions. And anyway, just it was it was really it was really wonderful to revisit that. Um, but at the the end of your book has chapters on three groups with, of course, a lot of overlapping membership. Um, I was particularly excited to see included in a book about labor organizing, which is um, which are, I should say, sex workers, disabled people and prisoners. And I was oh, yeah. wondering if you could say a little bit more about the inclusion of of sex workers, disabled people and prisoners in this book on labor, um, because I think it I think it is absolutely important. And I I really loved in particular the way that you also talked about how, um, how, for example, um, a number of, you know, workers would, you know, not infrequently become disabled because of their organizing as well, that this, that these are, um, I don't know, that's just that they're very important categories to, to think about.
1: Yeah, that was, I mean, I was, I love every chapter, of course, but those three really <laughs> meant an especially great deal to me because those are the kind of stories that you really never see brought within this kind of general labor history Uh, like they don't end up in the labor history box very often right like there's a lot of great books about those specific groups and what they have done and their specific struggles but the intersections between them is where all the power is built and where the most interesting stories come out and something that came out to me like really clearly when I was researching was you know I went into it knowing that there must be intersections and and just kind of assuming like there'd be a little bit of overlap, but seeing how much overlap there were between different movements, it really kind of blew my mind and it kind of made me a little bit angry that I hadn't heard about them before. Like, even just like the long history of sex workers engaging in activism and organizing and standing up for their rights when nobody else would, like that goes back decades and decades, like... Way back. Like, there's such a precedent there. And, and the fact that we're talking about this and there's a group of dancers at the Star Garden in North Hollywood who are on strike right now. Some people in the labor movement have been showing up and showing solidarity, but not nearly as many as we might see if it was a strike being led by, I don't know, janitors or uh, retail workers or another group of workers. There's still that stigma. There's still that extra layer of marginalization. And I figure that if I have this chance to write a book, to write a labor history book, I can finally bring in everybody who has always been here, who has always been part of the struggle, but for various reasons, whether it's just stigma or whorephobia or classism or racism or transphobia like whatever oppressive reason that you have decided not to bring these folks into your narrative like I could dispel that I could I could put them in my labor book because that's where they belong like I learned so much about the history of incarcerated workers organizing like I knew a, a decent amount about it just through you know being involved in various abolitionist causes and like having one of my best friends was in Riker's. Uh, last year but just going back to the 70s and before like there's so much history there and like you said when it comes to talking about disabled workers like I mean that one was a little extra personal because I'm disabled and it's just kind of nice to learn more about my people if you will but um yeah because I mean it's a it's a like I'm in this book too right like I wanted everyone to find themselves in this book But uh, when I was doing that kind of research and seeing like these very specific overlaps, not even just in terms of general liberation or general accessibility, like thinking about, for example, uh, the Section 504 protest and occupation when disabled activists took over federal buildings in a number of U.S. cities. I think the biggest was in San Francisco, about 100 people. And they occupied these federal buildings for days and sometimes weeks and in San Francisco specifically, they they were able to pull this off through community support and through the support of labor and other like justice minded organizations. Like the Black Panthers kept them fed, and when some of the leaders went out to D.C. to speak to Congress, the Mashness union like gave them resources and provided transportation by renting like a big box truck because a lot of these folks use wheelchairs and use mobility aids, and this was before public transportation had to be accessible. So these activists couldn't get around. So a union stepped in to help. And just reading about things like that made me feel so, it just kind of gave me this warm little glow because I love seeing the ways that, that people come together and the way that struggles intersect. And I really hope that putting these specific groups in my book will maybe open some other people's eyes to the plight of their fellow workers and help them get past whatever biases and prejudices they may have and realize that you know if you want to fight for workers you need to fight for all workers you know it's it's an injury to all isn't it an injury to one is an injury to all not an injury to like specific people is an injury to all like it doesn't work like that you're in or you're out
0: Mm -hmm. Mm mm-hmm yeah I was in the in the sections and um, in, in those three chapters in particular, I was really compelled by the way that you wrote about. Um, the structures that lead to certain kinds of um, of inequitable working conditions, not just uh, systemic oppression, but um, additionally um, legislation that um, mandates different kinds of minimum wage for disabled workers, for example. And I was I was thinking um, about how the the thread of working conditions really. I mean, obviously, that—that like that is obviously, you know, much of talking about about unions and and labor organizing. But in particular, I was really struck when you were writing about those working um, in garment factories um, in the past, and also right until you know <laughs> the moments of of COVID and how those those working conditions were still still. I don't know. Really, really horrific. Um, and I was wondering if you could say a little bit more again about that reflection between between past and and present.
1: It just shows that so little really has changed in like in a material sense for so many of the most vulnerable workers in this country. And it's just it makes you mad, right? Like we went through, well, not we, but people like us went through these horrific tragedies and these brutal struggles and these endless strikes and tried so hard to make things better. And even when they won in so many cases, that was a a small victory or a fleeting victory. I mean, we can talk about the triangle factory, fire and the important legislative reforms that came after that and that did help like that was very important like no shade on Francis Perkins or anybody who was doing that kind of work then but then you think about what's happening in for like Los Angeles for example which has, is just a massive population of garment workers who are predominantly Asian women and Latino women from various other countries and even, like, the, the woman I interviewed for the book was, you know, told me about what she deals with on a daily basis and the, what she's breathing in and what is scattered around the workshop and how the doors are closed. And it's just, you wonder, like, have we learned nothing? Like, is it going to take another massive fireball and another 146 dead workers to get someone who is in power to pay attention and try to make things better. I mean, we think about, you know, the coal miners on strike in Alabama right now, who I've been, I've been covering their struggle for the past year. And obviously like the technology has changed in some ways, the machinery has changed, but they're still spending just as much time underground as their dads and their granddads did. And they're still breathing in the same, recycled air, and there's still coal dust and silica in that air. You know, black lung is back on the rise. People like to think of black lung and these horrible occupational diseases as a a thing of the past, but they're not. And there's so much more that could be done to prevent people from, from suffering in this way, but the people in power just don't care, and they never have. That's why building collective power among workers, among the working class is really our only chance for survival like we got us here we're the only ones who can get us into a better place so
0: throughout the book there are um you know really (laughs) really horrific things um like the the fire you described um a lot of a lot of really um I don't know difficult things. I would say to read about people organizing and the response um, from the government or for, from from employers, um, but the book still seems to have quite a lot of optimism, um, which you sort of remarked on when you when you joined the call. And but the optimism doesn't doesn't seem to be naive at all. It's it's this very like measured optimism of you know even if even if it's not happening now, then it it, there's this possibility in the future. And so I was wondering, you know, if you would consider this, this an optimistic book, or, or if this idea of a future possibility factored in while you were working on it?
1: I think it's a very true book. And I think it's true that eventually the workers are going to win. It's taken us a really long time. But (laughs) I mean, you, you kind of have to keep that sort of hope. And you have to dream as big as possible because giving up and succumbing to negativity and succumbing to pessimism that's how the the, mm, try not to swear that's how the bad guys win (laughs) that's how the bosses win you know it's when people give up is when the people in charge are able to to grind their boots into our necks a little bit harder you know and i think that the history of the working class in this country is so inspiring it's not in a hokey way just in a like just in a very visceral way, like, look what we've done. Look what we've pulled off. Like, even people that have been, like, aggressively oppressed and marginalized and shoved to the side and shoved into the shadows, like, have accomplished incredible things and made huge impacts on their lives and the lives of subsequent generations. Like, we should be proud of ourselves. And yes, there's a lot of work left to do, but I think people know that. You know, I don't think anyone goes to work as a union organizer without knowing that there is this this massive task ahead. But they still go. And the workers who are organizing themselves are still doing it. Like, I don't know. Like I said, I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna. And I guess that probably comes through a little bit. I don't like being a bummer. I don't like focusing on the negatives because there's so many negatives. Like if you focus so much like exclusively on all the times we lost, you're not going to want to get out of bed. But if you focus on the times we won and try to learn from that, then that just helps us win a little easier next time.
0: That's that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Um, something something else that I was reflecting on while reading this um, was how frequently issues of sexual violence or sexual harassment, um, came up as reasons to organize or as, um, things that would, that would help people, um, I don't know, things that became major issues, particularly in terms of, of working conditions. Um, and I think in part, I was particularly struck by, um, I don't know, just the openness, with which that was confronted, and where how that was that was actually seen as as a labor issue, um, and I, I realize it sounds a bit I don't know strange perhaps to say you know I read I read these passages on these these horrible things that happened and came out with a sense of optimism because people were you know engaging with this, um, but I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, just particularly. Um, I I just I noticed that this particularly came up in terms of um, black women organizing and also uh, janitors and domestic workers.
1: Yeah, like I mean, sexual violence and sexual harassment, like that is absolutely a labor issue. That is a workplace issue. That is an employee management issue. Like it's funny when I was researching this book and kind of pulling all these little threads together. Really, just realizing how much kind of everything is a labor issue when you think about it because most people, almost everyone really is either has a job or is going to have a job or did have a job. That's kind of this almost universal experience. And of course, there are people who are more vulnerable to specific kinds of workplace safety issues. And you know, I think about Suzette Wright, who is just an incredible ray of sunshine and such, an incredible character. I'm so lucky I got to know her during the, this process. I actually met her a couple of years ago at a, a panel at Georgetown about addressing sexual violence within the labor context. That's where I met some of the the workers with Yabasta too. And I kind of kept that in the back of my head. And um, yeah, I talked to Suzette who, she was a, a worker at a just an auto plant in Chicago. And she started working there and she was pretty young. And she actually followed her, her father into the factory, and he didn't want her to. He wanted her to go to college, but she had to support a child, and she wanted, to, she wanted the steady work. So she went in there, and she just had to deal with the most heinous and constant sexual harassment from her coworkers and managers. It, she'd put up with it as long as she could, but it, it had a very drastic impact on her mental health, and she eventually had to leave. But she blew the whistle against Ford. And she put into motion this whole kind of, she just put into mention a a motion, a movement that eventually resulted in settlements being paid out and apologies being made. And these women who have suffered so much getting not what they deserve, because they deserve the world, but getting a little bit of payback for what they underwent. And being able to write about that just felt really good because I'm, Like I feel like most women and a lot of and non-binary people in this country, like I've also had to deal with things like that at work, and it was really satisfying to see someone win. And the same goes for the janitors uh, who were involved in the Yabasta. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but (laughs) Yabasta campaign in California, which was um, a group of janitors, predominantly Latina women, basically came to their union was like, look, we're dealing with this, this horrible, demoralizing, dangerous issue. You need to do something about it. And they launched this whole campaign and they trained hundreds of workers as promotoras, like kind of community liaisons to talk to people in the community and talk to workers and teach them about their rights and about how to stay safe. And it kind of snowballed into a whole, a whole thing. And that happened because these workers realized like, okay, this is not, this is a workplace issue. This is something we can bring to the union and we need to make them listen because this is a safety issue. It's a mental health issue. It's a, it's, it's everything. Like when you're just trying to go to work and someone is debasing you and threatening you in that way, like you're not going to be able to get your job done that's, that's a labor issue. So um, all that to say, I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity to kind of bring those threads in because I think it's really important. And it's not necessarily something that gets top billing when we talk about labor issues at work. But for the people that experience it, it can take over your entire world.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate how, how you managed to bring in so many different issues that I think many might not consider, quote unquote, traditional labor issues, um, but just really made it clear that, yes, you know, these these are labor issues. And here are here how many people have have addressed them.
1: Yeah, it was I guess that's just and I'm not like special. I've just spent a long time. Thinking about these things in various contexts and trying to play catch up to other people on this beat because like I said I was in the music business for a long time like I spent most of my life thinking about heavy metal but even when I was in that context, especially after I like educated myself politically and kind of saw more of the world and got out of the woods, I Started seeing how these interlocking systems of oppression impact people in the heavy metal community and how people with different identities and backgrounds suffered and felt like they didn't fit in to this, you know, this community that is tailor made for misfits and weirdos. Like, if the weirdos won't let you into their weird club, where are you supposed to go? And I guess I just had a little bit of background and thinking about these things and then by the time I made it to labor it just made so much sense to me like oh well this is clearly all connected like I'm not an economist I'm not an academic I'm not good with numbers but I know people and I know people who have had to struggle and I've haven't had the easiest ride myself so I suppose the, that's just the approach I went with because it's the only approach I know
0: well, Kim, we've taken a lot of your uh, time today. Um, where should listeners go if they want to read more of their work or if they want to pick up a copy of Fight Like Hell?
1: So the book's on pre-order right now, but it should hopefully be in stores wherever books are sold. <laughs> and um, I always hope that people choose to support independent bookstores in their, in their neighborhoods or hit up Bookshop or IndieBound because uh, I, don't, I don't think Amazon needs any more of anyone's money. But, um, and otherwise I still write a lot. I'm still a freelancer and I post everything on um, my Twitter and I have a Patreon, Patreon still can't say it, but um, yeah, I'm very online. I'm pretty easy to find and there's not that many, uh, reporters that look like me. So just if you see somebody covered in tattoos, with really long hair and a bunch of metal in her face, you probably found me.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, for your time, for, for talking with us today.
1: Yeah, this is a really great conversation. I really appreciate that you pulled out some of these kind of deeper threads in a way that was really satisfying and fun. Like I, I really want like those three chapters that you highlighted really mean a lot to me. And I think some, maybe not everybody wants to talk about that stuff. It's a little tougher, a little more difficult, but that's why we need to talk about it. And that's why I put it in there. So I appreciate Ab- that. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for, for talking with us and have a have a good um, rest of your, your week and congratulations on your book coming out.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate you. <laughs>